the Marion Man, nobody knows exists for all the correct reasons. Yeah. Can you do can you do an impression of this movie? <laughs> what do you mean do an impression? Hey there, cowboy. Why don't you cool your spurs for a second? Listen here, Pally, I ain't cooling nothing for nobody. I th- I think it's more along the lines like it's more along the lines of like so there was me and the boys and we're out in LA to make big time for ourselves and what happens old Johnny's got to get himself into the same kind of trouble he always does what are the odds of that yeah what are the odds is one of the recurring jokes in the movie I, I fucking hated this movie with every <laughs> like we've watched bad movies where it's been like oh this is a bad movie and this sucks. But like every minute of this movie was like a fucking corkscrew drilling into my ear because the majority of the movie is narrated by Paul Reiser being like, and then he went into the bar again and no one expected it. What are the odds of that? Like, oh my fucking. But a funny thing happened on the way to the altar. Charlie Pearl fell head over heels for a big time gangster's girl. She's Bugsy Siegel's girl. Is there any way that I could see you later on tonight? Sure. If you don't mind looking up from a grave. Some things are worth risking your life for. You're an animal. You leave some pretty good teeth marks yourself. I gotta see you again, Vicky. You'll have to take it up with Bugsy. Gee, that's the first time you've ever called me Bugsy. Um. Oh, this is bad. Well, this is so bad. Guess what, Sally? You slept with my girl? Well, now you marry her. What's Adele going to say? Step up to the altar. What's her father going to say? We sent out 400 wedding invitations. We'll get in a note as soon as we get back to LA. We're kidnapped and forced to get married at gunpoint. At gunpoint? What is that? A new crime wave? They grab people on the street and make them get married? Do you still want her? No. Don't lie. A little, but it'll go away. This is a nursing home movie. This is 100% a movie for greatest generation people in the nursing home. (laughs) Right? They're like, put it on and it's like kind of nice and here's a bunch of nice white guys. Written by Neil Simon. I mean, well, I think the crazy thing about this movie is that this is like what pop culture was like. There was this whole strand of the 90s that people pretend doesn't exist, which was this like stuff about the 1940s, like zany shit from the 40s was so big in the 90s that there was a swing revival, you know, like there's there was a lot of this stuff. And I personally, as like a I was like a teen actor in South Florida, like not doing commercials, just doing like community theater stuff. And how many times did I do readings of Brighton Beach memoirs? I couldn't fucking tell you a million times. I was like guys and dolls. Guys and dolls. I was in plays in high school that were like, like farces from 1942 that had references to movie stars. I still don't know who they are as an adult. And like, that was what we were doing. That was culture. Oh boy, she's a real she's a real hot dame over there. I feel like a lucky guy. Hey, I know Myrna Lloyd. Leave me alone. This movie would have been infinitely better if they broke out into song. Oh, like yes. just let just let them break out into song. Just do some. No, I mean, I guess Kim Basinger yeah, does, does, but even yeah, those right. scenes are pretty 
pretty boring. Well, she, Kim Basinger, is nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actress for this movie, which is stupid. Who gives a shit about the Razzies? But I, I, so I was watching it with that eye of like, what is going on here? I think the scenes where she's performing as a lounge singer are the worst in the movie because she just can't quite do it right. And it's very weird. It's I, but what's strange about that is that that's her whole persona, right? Is a sultry lounge singer. She's supposed to be like Jessica Rabbit or somebody. Basinger. I don't know if it started here or somewhere earlier, but this to me was like what I knew her as in the nineties. Well, right? like in from Batman, right? From Batman, from Cool World, from this, and from L.A. Confidential. So she was this like. This this blonde bombshell from this Marilyn Monroe pre during right. Marilyn Monroe era and this um, yeah, like backward looking kind of bombshell right. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about 1991's The Marrying Man, which uh, came out the last week of March um, or the first week of April, 1991. It's uh, directed by some guy who didn't really direct anything else, um, which is for clear why it's written by neil simon it stars alec baldwin kim basinger uh robert loggia who's the mvp of the movie oh, I so think. good he's so good and and i would say uh, elizabeth shue is like not bad in the movie elizabeth shue armanda sante fisher stevens um, Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser, who narrates the movie and banyan from seinfeld yes um yeah. as a young man very weird whether he's annoying in real life or not he exudes irritation it being like irritation very easily his look the sound of his voice and this movie has no idea how to tap into that all they needed was someone to get annoyed with him because every time he talks it's annoying you know he, he but for some reason this movie just it does have, there's no creative juices flowing in this movie whatsoever right, yeah. it's like the script is just dead on arrival and all the actors are just sort of like meandering their way through it the most the most time there's any creativity i guess is the sex scenes between alec baldwin and kim basinger and this is where they fell in love but like even then it's who cares i mean well so i don't know if you did a lot of like i I mean i don't know if this is the place to talk about this but do you want it it was a famously troubled production so like i did no i did no research so please inform me sir yeah okay well so the basic basic plot is alec baldwin is a millionaire toothpaste uh, air and he f- keeps falling in love with lounge singer Kim Basinger and they keep falling in love and getting divorced and falling in love and getting divorced and like that's that's basically the plot of the movie okay can I interject for just a minute yes please yeah toothpaste air like <laughs> why it's not funny it's not why? it's there's nothing clever that's done with it he's just a toothpaste air I don't but nothing clever is done with it it's like it reminds me of in Elizabeth town where like <laughs> Never, never has a positive uh, analogy started that way. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I'll defend Elizabethtown over this movie oh um, God, no. easily. Like, Elizabethtown is ridiculous and um, a, a failure in some ways, but it's a failure on somebody else's terms. And it's, like, very bombastic. It's very over the top and at the, very, at the very least creative. It just doesn't succeed. The Marion Man, there's, there's nothing there. But at the beginning of Elizabethtown, Orlando Bloom fails as a sneaker designer and he tries to kill him. And there's just like this idea of like, who the fuck cares? Yeah. Like a sneaker designer who cares? And like, he's like, he's like incredibly wealthy and everything was depending on him at this sneaker company. And there's something about this. I mean, even that in the first few minutes of Elizabethtown has more stakes than Baldwin as a toothpaste. Yeah. He just keeps being like toothpaste. I'm from, I'm from toothpaste. 
There's Toothpaste. a scene very early on when uh, Robert Loggia offers him a cigar or uh, some whiskey, and he go. Alec Baldwin says, "My father told me never to stains the teeth." <laughs> That's like the only time it comes. There's one other scene that has anything to do with it, but they mention it all the time. It just seems to me like a classic Neil Simon thing. Like he wants you to be like, this guy's boring. And I guess that's the case because he wants to, I mean, but then there's also things that just don't even really register for his character, right? Like he wants to leave his bachelor party to go hang out with his wife because he misses his wife. But yeah. then, but then he f- wants to have sex with Kim Basinger <laughs> and then he can't get enough with her. It's like, it, it, it just doesn't, it takes for granted, like, horniness of men. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, dude, right, we're going through the movie in kind of a crazy way because it's such a fucking nut show of a movie. But, like, more than once in this movie, a group of pe- men go to a brothel for a bachelor party. Not a strip club, okay, they're going to a brothel. And this is completely unremarked upon in the movie. It's just like, this is where all the fun guys are trying to go have a good time. And they keep giving you like all these specifics about the women, about how sexy they are, which one of them is like that they're tall, which I have never understood that. (laughs) They keep going like, oh, we're gonna go with these Amazons. And they're like, he's like, they're seven feet tall. Why is that supposed to be sexy? Do you why why am I supposed to want to have sex with a seven foot because tall woman? The, I don't understand. Because of the, because of those long yams, buddy. I guess so. I guess so. These huge girls. This nine I had, foot tall I, I woman. Had one of the, I had one of the girls is seven feet tall. That's how every man talks in this movie. There's like there's like four men who talk that way. Oh my you know? god, yeah. The gal the 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 dames down at this dime shop are seven feet tall. And the worst thing about these characters, too, not only do they talk like this, but every time they get reintroduced in the movie, they're always, like, fabulously more successful. (laughs) They're like, I was starring in the movie with Fred Astaire, and my best friend wrote all the songs, and our other friend was the number one artist on the charts. (laughs) Right, they really have nothing to do in the movie other than to, like, show up as friends and reintroduce what they do in life, and then that's it. They don't really, like add to the plot or do anything they're just kind of like i guess they're supposed to be kind of like a chorus of some kind throughout the movie yeah like, yeah and they're but showing like, a certain they're they're growing and changing and alec baldwin isn't right like that's what's because oh, okay. alec baldwin is an heir and at the beginning of the movie he's rich and they're all broke but they all have big dreams and then throughout the movie alec baldwin like loses his money and but they all become successful and now they're rich and he he never had anything. He never had anything. There's a there's a part early in the movie where they're like, uh, I'm the funny one and I can sing good. And Alec Baldwin's like, and I pay for everything. But then he's broken right. and he has no identity, you know? So they're like contrasting right. with that, I think. But I'm also giving the movie like a lot of credit, you know? A lot of credit. Yeah. A lot of credit. Yeah. So you were saying um, before I, I I rudely interjected, you you were on track for something. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. Well. So okay. There's a this movie is apparently really famous, uh, or was famous at the time. There was a, a big article in Premiere magazine came out uh, before the movie even had been released, ta- calling it "quote unquote" production from hell. And it's really? Like, yeah. Apparently it was an absolute disaster. Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger, like, of course, they were married in real life. They met on this movie and they fell in love early in the production. And so it says throughout the shoot, they would keep the entire crew waiting around for hours before showing up on set. I guess with the implication being they're like fucking in their trailers and like, or just hanging out by each other. And they, they don't want to ever come to set. 
Um, Alec Baldwin supposedly punched a camera lens, tossed a chair, punched a den in his trailer, swore at the crew members while Basinger refused to do extra takes. She uh, constantly demanding her hair and makeup to get fixed. And this, she caused me, it says that she caused Neil Simon, she caused Neil Simon to storm off the set because she said, this isn't funny. Whoever wrote this doesn't understand comedy. <laughs> she wasn't wrong. She was right. A hundred percent. She was right. A hundred percent. The production, the budget went from 15 to $26 million. This was supposed to be Alec Baldwin's big follow-up to the hunt for red October, like a, a romantic comedy. And it was a huge flop. It didn't make any money. There's another entertainment weekly article. It's so interesting because it's all the stuff that would later come out about Alec Baldwin. But in this, he's like, He's like, the press is acting like I'm a hothead with some kind of crazy temper. Do I seem that way to you? I'm not like that. <laughs> <laughs> and the people are like, Alec may lose his temper, but it's just because he cares so much about making a good movie. <laughs> wow. All this nonsense, all this nonsense. And he's talking all about the press. It says in this Entertainment Weekly article, he says, he tells me he's never going to give another interview after this because he's so sick of the press. Oh, that sounds familiar. Oh my God, right. He's been saying that for 30 years, right? Remember he, yeah, I didn't realize he'd been saying it back at, since 1991. I remember when he re, he wrote that New York Magazine article that, right, that was like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm right, done exactly. with this it was forever. A cover I'm not story. participating. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah says, he, wrote, he wrote a cover story about how he wasn't doing media I anymore. Quit. Fucking he hypocrite. said he quit acting too, I think. Because yeah. he was like, I can't take this anymore. Right. He said like Kanye retiring. Oh my God. So here's one of the quotes. I wasn't going to, you know, go on Oprah because I never dreamed people would actually believe these lies that were printed about me and Kim. But the lies were just that they weren't showing up to set and that they were kind of belligerent. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if their relationship was like fairly, um, I I mean, I hate to speculate on somebody's relationship, but I will. Uh, I wonder if it was like from the get go, it was fairly like hot and cold or like a roller coaster ride, you know? Like they're just like screaming and it well, that's even in the movie where they yeah. have to get divorced a lot. And like those scenes seem like pretty good. They're like acted pretty well when they're having like a really big argument. Like they're either screaming at each other or fucking. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's exactly. like and cause the idea that they like wouldn't come to set because they're just hanging out in his trailer that's either to me it's like they hate the movie so much. They just don't won't do it. They hate the director. Or they're fighting because, like, if you're fucking, like, you're fu- like, how long how does long that take, are, really? Like an yeah, hour or two gonna... at the most, you know? Like at the most, like you know. And then you don't have to be on set that long. You can go back and fuck, you know. Like the lead actors show up and are are kind of like, you know, wow, she's beautiful. Cut print. Bring in the stand-ins, and then they can go back to their fucking trailer and fuck. Like I, I don't understand, you yeah, know. I just can I just please read you some more quotes from this Entertainment Weekly article? Please. So here's Alec Baldwin. I'm not some psycho, which the press and Disney would have you believe. And then Disney. It's apparently this movie was produced by Disney and Jeffrey Katzenberg in particular. So he he spends a lot of this article talking about how much he hates Jeffrey Katzenberg. So here's just a couple things. Disney Studios, totally evil, greedy pigs. Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg. He's the eighth dwarf. Greedy. Pulitzer Prize winner Neil Simon. About as deep as a bottle cap. Wow. Wow. About as deep as a bottle cap. Baldwin Baldwin just going off with his power at that time. It's completely, well, funny you should say that because, oh, I can't find the exact piece in the article right now, but it says in here... Um, 
oh, you know, he's trying not to get bogged down on the past. He's looking forward to the future. Next, he soon he starts shooting The Fugitive, and then the sequel to The Hunt for Red October, Clear and Present Danger. Replaced. Replaced on both movies. <laughs> Replaced. By Harrison Ford on both of those movies, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what did, I mean, he had, after this, he had, um, he had The Getaway with Kim Basinger, which is where they filmed those, they had the, they, the big thing was that they shot sex scenes. Yeah, they're naked. And that the, all the sex scenes had to be shot with robotic cameras. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah. And he has Malice with Nicole Kidman, which uh, I might watch that tonight, actually. I think that's on Netflix or something. That's an Aaron Sorkin script directed by someone named Harold Becker. But uh, it's a uh, malice is a lot of fun, and it was shot in my hometown. And then he did the getaway, which doesn't yeah. have like a very well known director atta- like on it. I looked this up recently. Roger Donaldson actually, Roger who Donaldson. had done some, who did Species, and he did Cocktail. Oh, Gary Glenn Ross. That's what he does in 1992. Right, right. But that's Mamet. Like that's his best. That's like his best friend. Yeah, I mean, and it's like one of his best things he's ever done. But that, so this is like kind of a dangerous period for him, right? Around when this movie comes out. The Marrying Man is a huge flop, and it's known in the industry that he sucks. He gets dropped from these two other big tentpole movies. He makes Prelude to a Kiss that comes out in 1992. And then Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross comes out the same year. Like, if that had not come out and been a hit, like, he might have, his career might have been over, you know? Like, he was like on a fucking knife's edge at this point just looking at these yeah he doesn't really have a good movie i think for the rest of the 90s and a lot of that has to stem from like i mean the only things that he has that are are pretty good are the mammoths are the mammoth things i mean by 1999 he's narrating story time with thomas having replaced ringo Starr as the narrator or george carlin i guess as the narrator on thomas the tank engine right or he's in mammoth state in maine in 2000 and then Pearl Har- and then it, and then it becomes his actual his real career, which is like small parts in big movies, right? right? So it's like a small part in Pearl at Harbor. Uh, he's the narrator of the Royal Tenenbaums. Small part. I mean, he's in. Then he's in the cooler, and he kind of at that point becomes the. I don't want to say a joke of himself, but he but becomes kinda. much more of a com- yeah. a comic actor at that point. And because we're at this point, not too far from Thirty Rock. That's in like two thousand and eight, I think, isn't that? 2006 yeah. so 2006 he starts being in 30 rock so and then he's in elizabethtown he's in elizabethtown do you want to spend town. more time defending elizabethtown do you have more to say i love elizabethtown i've never seen it i heard it looked like the worst movie ever made highly recommend it no, highly I, that highly cannot be right that ricky that cannot be right i think it's i think it's um absolutely worth watching <laughs> Like there's just there's just nothing like nothing else exists like it. Is it, what is the because it, it stars Orlando Bloom, right? Yeah. Was it like who did did who made it? Who wrote it? It's Cameron Crowe, written and directed okay, by Cameron Crowe. Crow. It's the Crow. beginning of it's the it's the beginning of the Cameron Crowe descent, <laughs> right? The plateau, the peak of 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 Cameron Crowe is almost famous, right? That's what he's sort of like working to. He gets to almost famous immediate bona fide classic. <laughs> Perfect movie. Almost Famous is a perfect movie for what it, for what I don't think I've ever watched like. it again because I'm worried that it would be awful. I think I used to see it on HBO, no. like in like 20 minute clips all the time. No, circa highly like 2006 or whatever. Highly watchable. Like throw it on. It's just, it's just wonderful to sit through. Um, but then 
from all that goodwill and all that power, Cameron, no one is saying no to Cameron Crowe right, anymore. Right. Nobody's, re- no one's reading his scripts and giving him notes. And so he's just allowed, he's like a Netflix filmmaker, <laughs> but with huge budgets. And he's fucking makes Elizabethtown about a, a failed shoe sneaker designer who fails so hard at designing a sneaker. He costs his company billions of dollars. It seems impossible. It seems literally impossible. So the company had no, no other sneakers. There's no diversification in their sneaker. They didn't, they hadn't like saved any money. Like Apple computers has like more money on hand than many governments, but this company had no cash on hand at all. So then Orlando Bloom attempts to kill himself by fashioning a, a huge knife to his workout bike because he's a yuppie, oh right? God, and so he has to do it. So like, you know, it's like one of the things sort of like when he pumps in like this, like the knife will hit him in the chest. Okay. Right? It's very similar to Max um, dildo up the seat on the exercise bike, except it's a knife in the front. <laughs> right, right, I got it. Um, uh, the dildo things is always sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, I just and, figured that was a, just a normal thing everybody can picture. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but... In the midst of that, he gets a call that his, I believe that his father has just died and he has to go back home to Kentucky where his family lives and like hang out with the yokels, (laughs) you know? And And the whole time he's like, he's like, I got to get back home so I can kill myself. Is that kind of his motivation? Yeah. Basically. But on the way there, he meets a flight attendant played by manic pixie dream girl, Kirsten Dunst, who um, he keeps in touch with. She makes him a playlist with like oh, all no, of like she makes him eventually, a playlist. Eventually he just of course she makes him a playlist. This is a Cameron Crow movie. He oh, needs a reason God. to shoehorn in all of his songs. <laughs> yeah, so he decide he at a certain point, like there's a funeral for his dad, which is like one of the most amazing sequences ever put on film. The funeral for his dad. Susan Sarandon does, I think, a 10-minute tap dance. <laughs> what? Like I am oh, I'm not God. kidding. It's in the future. She does like she just starts tapping, and it goes on oh and on. This is like and the kind of thing that's like it's like post post Magnolia, right? This kind of thing, someone tap dancing for ten minutes as a sort of right. Where a, a bunch of filmmakers thought they could possibly be as talented, yes, and we're just like exactly. immediately like fucking cratered their career. They're like, oh yeah, um, okay, somebody does something weird. All right, I got it. So then Orlando Bloom's decide Orlando Bloom decides to drive across the country to rediscover America or something like that. And that's when Kirsten Dunst gives him a playlist with like all these oh like God. with like a scrapbook of things that he can look at at all the places that she's been because she's a flight attendant. So she's sure, been to all these right, places. Right, right. And of course, I think most of the playlist is like Tom Petty and Bob Dylan because it's Cameron <laughs> Crowe. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. And and the great the great part outside of the tap dance. Oh, and following the tap dance, Paul Schneider, the actor Paul Schneider, does um of of uh, his band does Freebird, and they like basically like in the midst of the climax of Freebird, you know, it's like bam, 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 like the jam set, the jam out. Mm-hmm. Uh, an eagle, like a fake eagle, is supposed to like dive bomb into the auditorium where they are in, but it catches fire in a light, and everything catches fire, and they keep playing Freebird for no reason. Like <laughs> for some reason, they don't leave and or stop. But then he goes on this road trip and oh, and also while he's on the road trip, he's talking to his dad because he brought his dad's ashes and his dad's oh, ashes cool, is sitting in the passenger cool, cool, seat. Cool, 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 cool. Yes. And, now I'm on board. So, yeah. So there's all these moms. Do they wait, do, do they do they do reaction shots to the urn? Yes. 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 There's, yes. Like, it's, it's 
Like it reminds me there used to be this sketch, uh, or there was this sketch on the state where Michael Ian Black like has a toothbrush as a pet, and he's like, he's like, toothbrush, I love you, and then it just cuts to the toothbrush. <laughs> it's like similar to that, but in this, but it's like serious. montage. It's like a montage, and Orlando Bloom is crying and like like gesticulating wildly, and then it would cut to the urn. <laughs> Dad, we should have taken this trip years ago. But he takes the urn to Memphis, Tennessee, where Martin Luther King was killed. Oh no, they, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. and they sit and they, they sit, he holds the urn and they look at <laughs> the balcony where Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> no. was shot. It, see, man, I'm telling you, oh you God. have to see Elizabethtown. Oh you have to, God. you have to watch it. One, like 100% worth watching it. It's ban- it's bananas. This is fucking unhinged, Ricky. Like, yes, I cannot... it's Cameron Crowe unhinged. It's Cameron Crowe like, unhinged. He's gonna go to look at the balcony where Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. These two white these people. Th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, one of them one is white dead. Man and, yeah, one of them's ashes. <laughs> So this, that's why though, but that's why I would say as much as I was like, you know, slightly reminded by, uh, of Elizabethtown in the most like peripheral way possible, um, you can tell why Elizabethtown would be such a better watch than this movie, because there's really nothing unhinged about this movie. No. It rides a, it rides a flat line from beginning to end. It's just inert, right? I mean, and you know, the thing is like Alec Baldwin in 1991, like this is a good looking man. He's like one of the most mm. good looking people ever Very. to exist. It's like weird how good looking he is. Yes. Um, and Kim Basinger is great too. I mean, honestly, she doesn't look that hot. Like next to Alec Baldwin, like he's got this fucking his hair and his teeth, like good Lord. Um, but she's doing fine. Tall, dark and, tall, dark and handsome with blue eyes. What the uh, fuck? I, I was thinking during this movie, like how many early like late 80s early 90s movies was was light coming through vertical blinds at a slant and hitting alec baldwin shirtless in a bed like i feel like that's like was just its own genre of cinematography for like five years um i have to say who wants to watch this era of like a recreation of this era Without it being actual noir. Well, a lot of people, Ricky, a lot of people do, especially at this time period. Like, you have to think that a movie set in the 40s, and it actually goes into the 50s, it's like a movie set in the 80s and 90s at this point. So all sorts of people, like, you just like cornball dumbass shit from 1945. And like, those were like the positive reviews of this movie. Like Roger Ebert's review, I think was like, Oh, it's just like those cornball dumbass piece of shit movies from 1945. (laughs) Like, isn't that great? And you're like, no, it's not great. (laughs) Those movies sucked. This movie sucks. Like it it does feel like maybe there could be funny moments, but even within those moments, it doesn't feel like anybody's trying that hard. You know, the moment when, when they go back to Alec Baldwin's father's house and, um, his father's dying and they've been waiting and you hear, and you hear in fucking Paul Reiser's goddamn narration, you know, like, so there they sat three weeks waiting for the old man to come out of his coma so she could meet him. And then one day she goes, I honey, can I go to the bathroom? And he goes, yeah, of course. And then she gets up and goes to the bathroom. And as soon as she leaves the room, of course, the old man goes, where is she? And Alec Baldwin goes, honey, honey, come back, come back. He's waking up. And she comes, she goes, oh, what? And then she's like running. He goes, and fucking shits himself and dies. And, uh, and he goes, like, she come- you missed it. Yeah. And I guess it. that's supposed to be funny, right? But it doesn't seem funny at all. It seems sad, if anything. And it also seems like, 
you know, that could be funny, but like you wouldn't, why would he say you missed it? That's right? the like, thing if add, like in, in, inject some kind of reality into this. If, but it's like, it's trying, I mean, it's a Neil Simon thing. It's trying to take place at this heightened reality. Like I'm picturing like Gene Wilder. I'm picturing Gene Wilder doing that, going like, you missed it. Like, I don't know. I think he could maybe pull that off. That's true. That's true. I also love that Kim Basinger didn't know who Neil Simon was. Whoever wrote this. <laughs> yeah, whoever wrote this. And someone was like, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning Neil Simon. She's like, I don't Whatever. care. It's like, if you don't know like, who Neil Simon is, why are you even doing the fucking movie? Because <laughs> otherwise it sucks. Like, that's the main thing it has going for it. Honestly, th- those are the times when, like, dumb people really prevail. Totally, is when they're, yes, 100%. Is, is, and is when they're just sort of like, I don't give a shit. They're like, this sucks. And, the, and you're like, but and it's like, by this person who's really smart. And they're like, yeah, but it sucks, <laughs> you know? And like, yeah, and you're like, Oh yeah, fuck you. You're like your your lack of allegiance to what has been like deified and qualified as great artists like works sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they're just right. They're just reading it as they're just interacting with it completely, genuinely like tabula rasa, and they're like, oh, this sucks. I don't like this. <laughs> you know. So one thing that you said was like you thought Elizabeth Shue was good in this movie. I have a huge problem with how they use Elizabeth. Oh well, Shue in this me movie. too. I think her performance is not bad, but I I think like, the way she's treated the character is absolutely like abhorrent. Like every minute she's on screen, she is talked about and treated as if she is like some yeah. deficient fucking. Um, mongrel that's crawled out of a swamp disgusting Everyone... disgusting person her own father turns to her in one scene and says what did he ever see in you it's elizabeth shoe she could arguably play kim basinger's she part probably would have she been better hair. she probably would have been better than kim basinger she's insanely beautiful yes like yeah and you're supposed to buy her as like the whole the homely like nerd weirdo but i mean I, I this movie is a victim of its own casting in that way because like again this the stuff with her is supposed to be funny because alec baldwin keeps being supposed to marry her and then ditching her at the last second which again is supposed to be funny but it's actually like really really awful behavior and i couldn't believe that it was being like laughed off in this movie but um, you're supposed to think it's funny that he keeps ditching her and everybody keeps saying to her, why do you want to marry this girl? Like, you could have any hot girl. Her, again, her father says that to Alec Baldwin. And and it doesn't work when it's Elizabeth Shue because you're like, she's beautiful. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, they should have cast someone who was not as beautiful as Elizabeth Shue if they wanted this to even come close to working. But then I was thinking, is that is that meaner? Well, yeah, definitely. It's because then you're laughing at because you're like, oh, right. It's an ugly person. Ha ha. You know, right. Versus like casting a beautiful girl and like, you know, giving her a weird dye job and being kind of like, oh, she's not a blonde bombshell. Therefore, she's not as attractive versus like, you know, if you were to cast an actress who is objectively, I guess we're not supposed to have objective beauty standards anymore. Never should have before. Sorry. Um, it, like who is you know objectively less attractive, and you're constantly remarking on the fact that she's a pig. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I think that like in this kind of school of heightened reality, 1940s, early 90s stuff, like I'm thinking too of like Johnny Dangerously, like that kind of shit. Like, right. You have to. It has to be an actual like ugly girl with like makeup with like a wart on her face or something, you know? Because then you kind of are keying into that reality. Or she has to have like a really obnoxious voice, you know? Yeah, like, like, Daddy, she, why? 
Ex- exactly. Like, uh, um, like what's the Elaine, May- the heartbreak kid with Charles Grodin, right? Mm-hmm. Where like he falls in love with Sybil Shepherd because the wife that he has is played by um, not Elaine May, but isn't it Elaine May's daughter? What is her I fucking name? I don't know. Jeannie Berlin. Jeannie Berlin. Great. Yeah. Jeannie Berlin, who is in like Margaret. Um, is she? Um, yeah. She's Elaine May's daughter. Okay. Daughter of Elaine, daughter of Elaine and Marvin May. Why? I, what, what, I knew that. Why? Why? Why are we talking about this again? Because she plays the anno- the like the annoying wife of uh, Charles okay, Grodin right, in the right, Heartbreak. Right. Even though Har- even though Grodin is kind of like the villain in that movie, it's like the big difference between the the Farrelly Brothers remake and the original Elaine May movie. Um, Grodin is kind of like a jerk off, um, whereas in the Farrelly Brothers, it's like Ben Siller's like fell in love with a different woman, you know, similar <laughs> to this one. Yeah, right. But yeah, Elizabeth Shue is just kind of like, I like you. Why why can't we why can't you stay with me? Why don't you like me? You know, versus being like, Why don't you like me? Exactly. And and it's like a beautiful Elizabeth Shue, like with not quite crying, but with like tears in her eyes, and she'll say things like, I'll wait for you if if you really think you love me. But it and we're supposed to like not be rooting for her, (laughs) like, you know? I have I have in my notes multiple times I or at least twice at the beginning. How could you not hot be hot for Elizabeth Shue? Fuck off. Yes. And then I have, and then I have another note. What the fuck? It's Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> it's completely insane that we're meant to buy into this reality where she's like the homely person he's obligated to marry to try to rein in his wild spirit. You know. I I referred to this at one point in my notes as. This feels like Billy Crystal style humor. Yes, I 100%, hate it. A hundred percent. I mean, that's kind of Paul Reiser's deal, though. They exist on that same continuum, right? Oh, it's like that's my kryptonite. I I fucking hate it so. Like it, like that kind of humor drives me really crazy. I mean, I will say, like when I was like a child, I enjoyed things like this. I can't pretend I didn't. I did, you know. Paul Reiser. I mean, did I, I watched mad about you on television when I was a child, you know, I mean, what, what, what was I getting out of it? I don't know. You know, I guess he just talks in a way that's funny. If you can like tell it's a joke, if you're eight years old, because he's like, we I went was... to the store. And... I realize if this doesn't work out, I'm going to have to blow my brains out. It's good. So as long as there's no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a note that is like, this shit is exhausting. <laughs> It's just a note that I have. I don't know what that's in reference to, but it's like, I think after they were like driving to the bachelor party and the five guys were in the car, I was like, this is so exhausting to to listen to these people talk. Especially because there's a scene where they get to the gas station where they have to get the car fixed, right? Because they have a blowout. Mm -hmm. And it's staged like a fucking play, right? It's staged so poorly. And there are scenes of dialogue where it's like, all of a sudden... Alec Baldwin walks to the, like the forefront of the frame and the guys are in the background like listening. It literally looks like a musical, right? Where like Danny Zuko's about to start Danny Danny Zuko's like we met on the beach. She was unbelievable and the four guys are like, you know, in the far right, right yeah. corner behind him mm-hmm. and are like, "What'd she look like, Danny?" Like it's exactly it's framed exactly like that. And yeah. I was so mad i mean that's that about I the level this. of this movie is like <laughs> what's she like danny like that's basically what's happening in every scene uh and then in that moment where they're driving in the car and they hit they get the blowout like as they blow out alec baldwin hands what he's drinking back to the other guys and it's a bottle of milk 
But it's like the, in, the, in the hot Vegas desert sun. Because he doesn't drink, Ricky, you understand. He doesn't drink. So he, what, what would he be drinking? Bottle of milk. Is that really what it was? I think so, right? Because they say multiple times in the movie he doesn't drink. Ugh. Anyway, um, they get to the nightclub and they meet. They see Kim ba- Basinger or Bassinger? I don't Basinger. know. I don't know. I say Basinger. They see Kim Basinger sing. And right away... A Baldwin is submitted, and he doesn't know what to do. And I was thinking about this while I was watching. It's like he's gonna leave his his fiance for a blonde nightclub singer because he's so smitten. the The equivalent to that this day and age would be like if we were making a movie and our lead character was gonna get married and then went to a strip club I mean, and was yeah. like, "I'm in, I'm, I'm in love." I'm in love. With You'd be like, "What the like fuck?" Like a cam girl, maybe or something. Yeah, you know? like. <laughs> You'd be like I'm in love. You're like, shut the fuck Who up, the man. Fuck it's a stripper. About? Yeah. It's like a the stripper. song she's singing. She's like, let's do it. Like grabbing her tits and like shaking yeah. her butt around. And he's like, wow, I'm in love with her. And then he's, he sends his friends off and stays late so he can hit on her. He pretends and- that he's going to go home, which is actually even worse. He's like, because he keeps saying like, oh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to see my fiance. You guys go to the brothel. I'll see you back in L.A. And in reality, he stays there all night to get to like wait for her to get off. And then he, yeah, he waits for her to get off. She gets to, she goes to the bar to have a drink and he hits on her. And I remember like, he doesn't have to try very hard. And she's immediately like, yes. Yes. I mean, she definitely tells him no several times. And then there are these goons that are like, hey, back off, bub. But like, I mean, he does look like how Alec Baldwin looks. And eventually she realizes. It's basically she goes like, Elon, Elon Musk? Like, that's kind of what she's supposed to be doing. And then she's like, okay, yeah, I mean, you want to you wanna come hang out? Okay, I guess that's fine. Oh, because he keeps saying that he knows people who could, like, he could fix her, her career, career and he knows that's people, right. yeah. Which is also, like, what an asshole. What an disc- and when he gets to her, like, room, to the movie's credit, she's like, so what are you going to do for my career? And he's like, he's like, what? oh, nothing. What? What are you talking about? He's like, well, we're in your room. What do you, you know, I'm going to have sex with you. That's what I'm going to do for your career. And she's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then they have, then they have sex. And she says, what is, has to be one of the most cliche lines for a woman to say after sex, which is quote unquote, you're an animal. You're an animal. You're like, an animal. You're, what? No, like, you never, couldn't write a better line? Never in history. To anyone who's ever had a woman say to them, you're an animal, you were sleeping with a sitcom character yeah, exactly. that didn't exist, like, or well, you begged them to say that to you and they lied. Yeah, because it's like part of your thing is you make her say, you're an animal. <laughs> tell me I'm an animal. Urgh, tell me I'm an animal. Okay, you're an animal. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Stop. I mean, maybe this says more about the kinds of women that I have dated in my life, but I think the closest I've gotten to that is a woman saying like, boy, you really just, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds about right. It's like, wow, you really went for it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually, I have to say, usually what I get is kind of like a, okay. <laughs> Mm. i'm like i'm like i'm I'm like god i'm like what did you think and they're like always always a great question after sex i think yeah and they go and they go and they go 
It was nice. Thanks. <laughs> and then they shake your hand, and then they <laughs> leave. Right? Exactly. I have I have in in my notes. Uh, this is that period, and we've talked about this before, where like there was a, a like a children's movie tone in a lot of adult movies that yes. we kind of keep yes. seeing, right? Like they go to the when they go when they basically Kim Basinger is in a relationship with a gangster. He catches Baldwin and and uh, and and Kim Basinger screwing around, which makes no sense because basically they're like laying on the floor under covers, biting each other's legs, and they're just fucked. And she's like, "You're an animal." And then all of a sudden, the gangster turns on the light, and he's sitting in a chair yes. as if like he's been there the, the whole of, time. The, he's been there the whole time. right, like. The kind of move that would make sense if someone just came into their home and somebody was waiting in a chair there. But this implies that he was watching them fuck. Yes. For it, an extended period of time. And I think they refer to that in the dialogue occasionally, the idea that he has been watching at least part of them fucking. <laughs> so so the so if Baldwin was an animal and they had been fucking for a while, Armand Asante, the gangster, Bugsy Siegel, Bugsy right? Siegel, That's who he's supposed yeah, to be, yeah. had been watching. For a very long... Well, I mean, okay, not to get too in the weeds on this, okay, but there is... So what happens is Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger are making out. The phone rings. Kim Basinger says, I have to... It's Bugsy. I have to answer it. I'm his girlfriend. He's supposed to be out of town. So she picks it up and she's like, hello. And he's like, what's going on? And she's like, oh, sorry, I was exercising on the floor. And meanwhile, Alec Baldwin is kissing her and he's hangs up the phone and, you know, really he's in town and he's like, oh, I'm really disappointed in this. Okay. They begin having sex immediately after that, but he had to drive to the house from wherever he was, like get into the house, sit down. So like already at this point, that's longer than I would usually be having sex. So like, unless he was like literally next door. So it must have been going on for a very long time. Right. This movie does not believe very much in credibility. No, it's not important. It's not important. You know, it kind of operates like a sitcom where everybody for plot purposes is within like, you know, the same building. Right, exactly. Everybody's, They're a neighbor. Everybody's within like earshot of each other when it's convenient, you know? So then Armando Sante basically says, oh, you two uh, like each other so much, you should get married. It's and like he... you think he's going to kill them. He's this big, scary gangster. But then it turns out he is doing something terrible to them. He's going to make them get married. Right. And they... There's this weird moment where they're getting married and all of a sudden they hate each other. And again, I just did not get it. They just had this, I mean, I, I, they both knew it was a one night stand. I mean, maybe that's the one realistic moment. I mean, in the movie, I do think so. Yeah, I do think the so. The movie was so unrealistic that I was kind of like, bummer, you have to marry Kim Basinger. Like they understand. have this amazing sex. They keep saying, he's saying like, I'm crazy for you, baby. I got to see you again. And she's like, oh, well, uh, you know, well, yeah, me too. And then as soon as Armando Sande is like, you're going to get married, he's like, to this broad? What? No, I'm getting married to somebody else. But like, yeah, I guess that is kind of realistic. Like, you know, he just thinks he's going to fucking fuck this hot lounge singer. Maybe they'll have some kind of short-term affair, but like, that's the end of it, you know? Uh, yeah, I just did not, like, I, I can imagine, though, like a theater of elderly people laughing hysterically at that. Yes, no, me me too, 100%, 100%. You know, I've been to, like, I had to see Tootsie on Broadway for work, <laughs> and I've had to see, like, other New York other New York theater shows. I mean, all New York theater is made mostly, like, elderly people, yeah. you know? But there are some shows that are, like, the, you can you can just hear their guffaws at like something like the gangsters making them get married. 
nothing nothing is more depressing to me than being in a room where people are laughing at some really really bad joke because it's like i know it's a bad joke and i know that the like author and like the actors also know it's a bad joke but it's killing it's absolutely killing with these people you know but i also wanted to say just on the on the point of like new york city theater being old people maybe i've told you this story before i used to be the publicist for a guy who was like a violin a classical violin player and a composer and he did like a residency at lincoln center at one point and so i went to a bunch of those shows and like everyone around me was like catastrophically old like like so old i didn't know how they could get out of their seats and they would all fall asleep during the performance and they would be <laughs> snoring loudly okay so one time this was going on, a guy who looked like he was easily 93 or 94 years old in like a suit that maybe fit him in like 1975, you know, is like he's snoring away for like a full hour during this show. And then like he stopped snoring. And I was like, do I need to like call the fucking paramedics? Like, is this guy dying? Like, <laughs> I think this guy is literally dying. I didn't do anything, but then at the end of the show, he did stand up. <laughs> I was like, for a while, I was really on edge. <laughs> it's like, because I was there that kind of like the, the most. I was like there as the publicist, so I'm like kind of working the event, you know. And I'm like, I don't know. Do I need to alert someone? Like, is this on me? <laughs> yeah. That sounds like the most riveting part of the show. A hundred percent was. Yeah, a hundred percent was. So there's there's a moment after they get married. Well, one, I have, I mean, Riser's voiceover just kicks in so many times. And I think I have a note for almost every time his voiceover comes on, which is like just different variations of how much I hate it, which is, um, uh, I have Paul Riser voiceover is death. And then I have another place. Every fucking moment Riser's VO starts, I want to fill my ears with dog shit. (laughs) I was so mad at it. I was really, really mad at it. But there's there's after they get married for the first time or after they break up, I don't I don't know. I stopped keeping track because I hated the movie so much. Um there's like a montage of old timey crashes. Yes. Beto- that, no, it's that, after that, they get divorced for the first time because the idea Alec Baldwin is supposed to be a millionaire playboy. So then we're seeing right. the divorces affecting him. And so all his millionaire playboy activities, which are he's a race car driver, he's a water skier, he's a regular skier, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. That was the funniest part of the movie to me because not not the footage of Alec Baldwin in black and white that they would kind of chop into the old timey, the actual old timey, like a news reel of a crash and then cut to Alec Baldwin going like, oh boy. But there would, but every, there was like twice where there was like, um, ADR of Alec Baldwin cut into it and <laughs> so there'd be like this old timey crash and like you know like a, a race car like rolling across the speedway a bunch of times and you would hear Alec Baldwin ow ooh ow ee ah ow and that like that was the one moment where I was like this is I thought that was really yeah, funny yeah that rules that does rule 100% yeah that's great he'd be like ouch ooh ooh <laughs> And he's got like a little band-aid over his eye or something. <laughs> um, I will say this about the movie as well. I'll, I'll save it for my favorite part, actually. I'll save that for my for, for my. I mean, do you want to just move on to that, Ricky? I mean, it's, why not, you know? I mean, I guess we could. We're pretty, we've been going for a little while. I'm just trying to think. I mean, is, a lot of that was anything... talking about Elizabethtown. So like, you know. Was it, did I talk about Elizabethtown that long? I think, I think we I collectively talked about Elizabethtown a long time. 
you know, we've been skipping around talking about this movie, but like one of the things to say about it, one of the real weaknesses, I think, is that it's written in this kind of crazy way where it's just like all these, the movie, the the plot of the movie easily covers like eight or 10 years, right? Um, And there's so much, there are so many events that happen to the characters in this movie, like way more than is usually necessary for a movie. Like the setup we told you, like he's, he's a millionaire playboy. He's supposed to get married to uh, another like heiress, but instead he marries this lounge singer because a gangster forces him to. That is a setup for a movie. Okay. There's like five more setups within the movie. It doesn't have the ability to carry any of these thoughts through longer than like two or three scenes. And then it's just like, and then there was another premise and then it's like another thing. And it just keeps happening over and over again. It's, it's completely insane. And that's why Paul Reiser has to do all this narration because they're always skipping like three or four years and giving you all this backstory just to set up like another scene of Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger arguing, you know, it's like, that's true. It's like, it's like we're skipping ahead just to do the same thing. Yeah. It's just another scene of them arguing, but they want you to have a different context for the argument. Like that's it, you know? And then I didn't understand, you know, when they get married for like the second or third time or whatever, and he's going to inherit the money and he has to go home to Boston to be with the family. And like, it's going to be five days that he's going to be gone. He ends up staying there much longer, but initially it's going to be five days. And she's like, I can't, he's, she's like, I can't be without you. I have to forego this audition and go back to oh Boston. God, with right? you. I was kind of like, I don't understand five days. Why? Like who cares? They who cares? Have separate. Yeah. It You're does, rich. He's a millionaire. A like go in a different flight, you know? Yeah. I, I, I really didn't understand. There was a lot of stuff like that where it was just kind of like, it's like a sitcom. They don't care. Like there's no logic just, to just, it. And like, yeah, exactly. It's just the event happens so that they, they can react to it. It doesn't happen because it's motivated in any way, you know? And then there's the other, uh, so after he inherits the money, he feels badly that like she didn't get her career in Hollywood. So he buys a movie, he builds a movie studio for her. Right. And the movie Instead studio, of just like producing a single movie, he builds a whole right. movie studio. Yeah. He builds a whole movie studio and like the movie studio fails and he goes broke. And they show that by him looking in the classifieds. Like, I'm sorry, but even in 1940, whatever, or 1950, whatever, that this movie takes place, you don't go from owning a movie studio to looking in the classifieds. No. There is it's, like, it shows lots him of like money waiting. handlers. He's waiting in the fucking office to get a job interview and they won't even let him in the door. He's like got a rolled up newspaper and a crumpled hat. And you're like, no, no, 100% no, this would never happen. Yes, you liquefy your assets, you go bankrupt. Like rich people stay rich. Yeah. They don't, like even then. Yeah, the idea that the movie studio went out of business and somehow that meant Alec Baldwin was like literally penniless. No, he's like penniless for someone who used to be worth like $300 million. Like he only has like $1 million, you know? Like, right. He's, he's not like, it's not like his electronic store went belly up and now he has nothing. Yeah, exactly. And you're owning it's the way this is structured too. I mean, I know this movie doesn't make a lot of sense, but this section of montage really bothered me because, okay, they go to dry out to this field and the music is really happy. And Alec Baldwin is saying like, baby, I'm building a movie studio for you. And she's like, wow, for me, but what do you know about movies? He's like, don't worry about it. It's going to be great. The music, music is really happy. And then there's like the montage is happy, happy music. They're being happy. They have kids. And they're like, Alec Baldwin, like finally found just the right movie for Kim Basinger. 
and like, and then they had another kid and like, I'm successful and he's successful. And then the movie studio went out of business and now he's broke. And you're like, what? Why? Like, why? Why did you have five minutes of a positive montage and 20 seconds of a negative montage? And then the rest of the scene, the rest of what this section is negative. Like, like and then what he, is going on? And then he's so broke that like they fight before going into a party and he right. and basically like they break up again because he can't stand to be broke with someone. Right. It's real shitty, like real, real shitty stuff on his on his yeah, part. She's the successful one now and he's the broke one and he can't handle it. Yeah, it's awful. And then um, and then they get back together because he sees her in a nightclub in San Francisco. And that's where the movie started. It's a very Broadway Danny Rose structure where like the guys are telling the story and then all of a sudden they're in the story at the end. Yeah. The story it's a frame story. Yeah, we go back to the frame at the end. Right. And it's like, even they've been married and divorced three times and they're going to fucking go for it again, man. But by the way, they have like six kids together. So I hope they are seeing each other like occasionally. You yeah. Know? Right. Like, they have like a ton of kids. They have like a million then, goddamn children. <laughs> like, And then he like, there's a joke where like the friends are surrounded, like, what are you up to these days? And he's like, Heh, I got into this new thing. I don't know, computers. And like Paul Reiser's voiceover, one of the guys are kind of like, What an idiot. Ha 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 ha. Like, oh my god, ha ha ha. Yeah. Hilarious stuff, Ricky. Hilarious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure they did that better in Forrest Gump when he got the Apple email the letter in the mail that Lieutenant Dan bought him stock in Apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was kind of poignant to me in a way because I was thinking like, you know, dude, if you had gotten like, quote unquote, into computers when this movie came out, like you still would be set up really good. Like, let alone if you had done it in 1956. Like if you had just walked out of the marrying man and been like, yes, I'm going to devote my life to technology and computers. I'm going to put all my money in computers. Like, yeah, that was, you still would have done really, really well. You know, <laughs> Uh, do you want to do the questions? Yeah, dude. Yeah, let's do it. You want to rock and roll? Let's rock and roll, motherfucker. Let's rock and fucking roll. Ricky, what was your favorite part of this movie? The eyewear. <laughs> it did have good eyewear. I agree. Paul Reiser and I think Fisher Stevens as well both have fantastic eyewear yeah, throughout I the movie. Mean, both. It's similar to my glasses that I have. Like it's just huge round glasses. I thought they were great. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, they both, both sunglasses and eyeglasses look great in this movie. Yeah. Great use true. of eyewear budget. Great use of eyewear budget. I mean, okay. So what is my favorite part of the movie? I mean, you gotta say, that, Oh, Chris, Chris, what is your favorite part of the movie? Oh, Hey Ricky. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, I gotta say for me, Ricky, it's, I like I like the layer to this movie as we're saying it sucks, but like knowing that Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger both really got married and then really had an actual super bitter divorce with like lots of allegations of like, of, you know, abuse and you know, emotional abuse and stuff. It makes the movie like much more interesting <laughs> because they do get married and break up so many times. So they have to be absolutely crazy for each other and then like screaming nasty things at each other. And both of them like pretty well acted. I thought it was seemed very real. It did real. really seem like their. Re- it did seem like their relationship. Yeah, it seemed like their real relationship. Like that was fun to watch, you know. And also, I brought yeah. this up earlier, but like watching uh, Kim Basinger just completely unable to act like a lounge singer was pretty great. Also, like I which really enjoyed again, it. I, which again, I don't understand because 
that was my perception of her whole me too me too 100 percent. and it's not the singing she's doing fine singing but it's the kind of like presentational style of being a lounge singer that she just seems to be completely at sea on like it's literally like me trying to act like a lounge singer like she's just like shimmying her hands weird and then like doing crazy faces and it's like a mess it's a mess just, I mean, just six years later, she won an Oscar for L.A. Confidential. I mean, yeah, it's a very similar part, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, speaking of L.A. Confidential and The Marrying Man, what would you say the most 90s part of this movie is, Ricky? That is really hard because this is another instance where this very much feels like an 80s movie. Yeah. So I have a hard, I'm, I'm not sure on that one, um, what the most 90s thing about yeah. this movie is. Because Alec Baldwin... This this very much feels like 1980s Alec Baldwin yeah. and not 1990s Alec Baldwin. Yeah. He's a super good looking matinee yet. idol, Alec Baldwin, right? Yeah. He has not started to bloat yet. No. Um, and Kim Basinger, I mean, I guess you could say her as the sultry lounge singer because that did become or like the 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 kind of blonde bombshell that she is in this movie, because prior to this, she was just sort of a model. But I mean, she did do From Here to Eternity, which is, you know, a period piece. And I, but I guess, I mean, it really is like you have this, you have Cool World and you have LA Confidential, all of which feel like like of a piece. And those are on the 90s. So maybe I would do I I I would do that, but I I don't know. It really, to me, feels like an 80s movie. I mean, that's similar to what I was going to say. Speaking of those, these period Kim Basinger movies, um, and I mentioned this earlier, like I do many times, but like the um, this strand of the 90s that is obsessed with like garbage culture from the 1940s and 50s, like of it's this was a very, very real part of society that we have mostly like willed into non-existence. Like we just pretend it never happened. This this whole deal, this cheesy 40s and 50s bullshit is like very, very 1990s to me. It's been... 30 years since this movie came out, Ricky. Like, what do you think we've grown out of? (laughs) I mean, everything in this movie sucks. But, like, we haven't grown out of movies where everything sucks. (laughs) Yeah, there's lots of movies where everything sucks, right? Um, I want to say we've grown out of movies that suck particular, like suck in this particular way, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case either. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 I would, I would like to say that we've grown out of this kind of like Jersey boys style period piece, but we did just have Jersey boys. Paul Reiser. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Paul Reiser. I mean, the nineties were definitely his time and he his he's he's passed beyond the veil since then like he's just decided to stop existing i mean what do you think we've grown out of i mean for me and again maybe it's like wishful thinking but because it's funny because a lot of the times when we talk about treatment of women in movies and like misogyny and stuff i feel like you're seeing things in these movies from the early 90s that i want to say we've grown out of but actually had a huge resurgence in the, in the 2000s <laughs> but i think since then we've grown out of it like even though it had a big revival recently but i think it's the like 
absolute, absolute male centeredness of this movie. The stuff we're talking about, about it's how it's supposed to be funny that Elizabeth Shue keeps getting her heart broken and the, you know, that it's supposed to be like, it's literally unremarked upon that they're going to a brothel for a, a bachelor party. And just the way that the men talk about the women and the way that the women exist as, you know, objects. I mean, really, there's just like two female characters in the whole movie, you know? I mean, I guess Kim Basinger, from a certain perspective, is a complicated character, but also not, you know, also not. The There are only two female characters in the movie, and one is the bombshell that he wants to be with, and one is the, like, yeah, the mother ugly the duckling whore, that... Right? Yeah. Yeah, that he that he doesn't have any. Yeah, that's true. Like he wants to be with the other one because she's she's like a a better woman, and they have no set. I mean, it's it's established at the beginning of the movie they don't have any sexual chemistry because he asks her to bite his lip, and she like kind of bucks. She's gonna do it. Yeah, that's the thing. She's going she's to do, do it. it. She would do anything need- you asked him her to do. Like she's game. Right. You know, he's like he's like bite my lip. Like to establish that they don't have sexual chemistry, he's like bite my lip, and she's she's kind of like wait what. And he's like, bite my lip, hurt me. And she goes, oh, I don't want to hurt you. And he goes, no, do it. It'll be good. And she goes, oh, okay. And then she goes to do it and they get they get stopped. So it's like, it's not that she wouldn't do right. these things yeah. or is a prude. I don't understand. She's going to fucking do it. Like, she's going to do it. Like, just because it, she hadn't done it before. I mean, in a certain sense, like, through a certain kind of person, that's even, like, sexier that she doesn't, has never, doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. And anything you tell her, she's like, really? Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, that's, oh, I would hate to be married to that person. That sucks. No, I hated this movie so much. <laughs> oh, I know you did, man. I know you did. Was there, it? There's like, there are certain things that, certain tones and certain, certain things that are just antithetical to my core. Yeah. Right. And like this, this type of humor is, is, is that, I mean, Paul Reiser has kind of always been that for me. uh, So like, yeah, yeah. Having him narrate a movie is (laughs) fucking like, (laughs) I mean, in my mind, Paul Reiser is supposed to play the kind of corrupt bureaucrat that's going to get killed midway through the movie. Oh, in Alien, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Aliens, and I think there's a, I think there's a couple other movies from the '80s that he's that he is that as well. Well, he has kind and of that's... a resurgence now, right? Because he was on that show Red Oaks on Amazon, and then he was on that uh, season of Stranger Things. And we're kind of in a riser sans. <laughs> he's risers rising. Yeah, risers rising. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't. Oh, I guess he's in Stranger Things, and they're doing a Mad About You like. Oh yeah, that already show happened. It was something. some kind of crazy shit where it was like only available to a certain cable company subscribers it was like epics cable company you know comcast optimum like that kind of thing and he was in horse girl oh yeah he was he was the dad in horse girl yeah he's good in that yeah, yeah he's good in that oh, whatever um, i kind of like paul reiser i'm sorry i do i kind of like him that sucks you're wrong i i mean he's a darling old man in all of these movies I you're mean, talking about beverly hills cop aliens um i'm 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 down with yeah like where he's like a piece of shit like canonically yeah 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 that's 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 where i that's where i ride with paul Reiser. <laughs> other than that i just i don't i don't really care i mean i'm assuming you read couplehood and parenthood <laughs> are those his books are you not familiar with the books of the massive new york times bestseller books by paul Reiser, couplehood and parenthood capitalizing no. on his success as the, I mean, of the sitcom Mad About You. 
where he's and wearing like, like a gigantic he... denim shirt and he's got his fist on his chin like oh right 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 of course they made him look a lot older for the Kaminsky method I'm noticing in photos. Oh yeah. Cuz no one can look no one can look as young as 73-year-old Michael Douglas. <laughs> so disgusting. They're like, "Oh, you're casting Paul, you got to make him look worse than Michael." He's cuz he's like probably a solid 15 years younger than Paul than Michael Douglas. Kaminsky method is basically just a show where every episode is like my Viagra won't stop working. Oh my god, I heard so many good things about that show. I and I tried watching it and I watched the first episode and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a same. 30 solid minutes of him going like his new girlfriend is from Rio de Janeiro. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> better have better take two little blue pills. Oh God! And you're like, is this this is this? Didn't this win an Emmy or something? <laughs> it won so many awards. Oh, it like, won so. It many. won like a bunch of Golden Globes, like, didn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think it won a bunch of like, you know, this is the sound of me rubbing my fingers yeah, together, like money, 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 Golden yeah, Globes, money, yeah. Money. Yeah, um, the five Belgian film writers that vote for the Golden Globes, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like who donated the most to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? They win. <laughs> Um, um all right yeah that's it dog that was the fucking show <laughs> do you feel like a married man you are i am a married man. man yeah no i mean it was interesting from a certain perspective because when I, at the beginning of the movie when i didn't know it was going to be about him marrying kim basinger over and over again i was like well it is interesting this idea of like marrying someone that's right for you or like following your crazy instincts to fuck like a crazy lounge singer but then that ended up being the person he kept getting married to over and over again. So like, I thought that was stupid, you know? I mean, the contemporary story is a guy that like is engaged and falls in love with a stripper. Exactly. And then he's like, but the stripper doesn't want to get married to him. The stripper just wants to like fuck him sometimes. And like, she's fucking other people and he's trying to be controlling over her because he's quote unquote, the marrying man. And he wants to like put some direction and, you know, do something with the relationship. That that's a movie that you would make now, but this movie is like fucking insane. Neil Simon only died two two years, two or three years ago. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. I, I thought it was much. I, I I assumed honestly that he died after this movie was made, <laughs> <laughs> like out of shame. Like it just felt written by someone nearing the end right well i think just that, someone that's just kind of like bleh, throwing things down like throwing things down like knows plot but is putting no creativity into it whatsoever i think the thing about neil simon is like so much of his stuff is set in 1945 that you assume that like it's from 1945 but no it's actually from like 1991 <laughs> you know like in 1968 he won best adapted screenplay for the uh, uh, the odd couple 75 adapted screenplay or he was nominated didn't win for the sunshine boys and then the goodbye girl and then california suite and then for tony's he's won four tony's and has been nominated like i don't know 15 times or something um oh biloxi blues is neil simon that's pretty good i mean he has like obviously good stuff oh he wrote the screenplay for the heartbreak kid oh wow that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. But it's like, um, they can't all be hits. You know, they can't all be gold. Like, 
Well, I also think that the Heartbreak Kid is directed by someone with a very clear perspective. Right. Uh, a very clear point of view on the man. In, and this, in, it's, in you it. know, we were talking all before about all the troubled production stuff, and that's a gossip to a certain extent, but it also, like, makes the product worse because they're the yes. stars are demanding rewrites. They can't shoot the stuff they're supposed to shoot. And, like, nobody is getting to make the movie they want to make, basically. And it kind of ends up with this, like, <laughs> like, whatever, you know. Such a flat line. Such a flat line, yeah. And it cost a huge amount. It cost $26 million. It took like a year and a half to make. Everybody was miserable the entire time, and then it didn't make any money back, you know? I mean, it's fun to blame Alec Baldwin, but he's not an idiot. Yeah. And so I do imagine that there was like other things going on on set that made him like particularly angry. Yeah, I mean, he blames a lot of it on Jeffrey Katzenberg wanting to make it a certain kind of movie, like to make it really vapid and stupid. And like, apparently Neil Simon was on board with that, but like he didn't want to do it. And him and Basinger are causing all these problems. You know, he said, that's why he's saying all this nasty shit about Disney. There's a whole section of that article where he's talking about like Disney, how it ruined, like the current companies ruined the legacy of of Disney, you know, and like. And he's right. I mean, at at this time, like in 1991, yeah, it was like pretty much in the shitter. Like, anyway. yeah, the, Disney wasn't didn't really have anything going in the 80s and early 90s. Well, Little Mermaid was 1989, I guess. But yeah, well, he, Alec Baldwin is like in this article, he's like talking shit about um, the how awful uh, Pretty Woman is, and the author is like, I remind him, Pretty Woman, like made 200 million dollars and everybody loves it and he's like so what ronald reagan was president i don't know crazy things happen i love it <laughs> yeah it's great all right that's it that's the movie everybody thank you so much for coming the marrying man the marrying from 1991 man. what a waste of time sorry now baldwin and kim bessinger bessinger fisher stevens and paul reeser and uh the movie the the movie sucked what were the odds of that <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back.